What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Whether you heard that from Kelly Clarkson or Nietzsche, it's pretty true. And my guest on the Reset podcast today is Paul Taylor. Paul Taylor's an, a Northern Irishman who's served in the military and is now runs the Mind, Brain and Body Institute. His book, Death by Comfort, talks to us about how we've got to embrace life's difficult things if we're going to actually have a full and happy life. I think you're going to enjoy listening to this fella. Here's Paul Taylor. All right, Paul Taylor, welcome to the Reset Podcast. Now tell me, what would you like to reset? Mate, my, my big passion is about having people reset how they view stress and, and how they view comfort and, and actually to, to look and go, you know what, there is some stress that is actually necessary and I need to deliberately expose myself to it in order for me to become better as a human being, bigger, faster, stronger, better, more psychologically flexible. Uh, and I think that is the big thing that I want people to reset and that that comfort is not always a good thing. Mate, congratulations. We were just talking before we come offline and I just love the way you've actually made people want to embrace discomfort and it, mm. it's, it seems counterintuitive but it kind of you, – you, you paint a really good sort of argument for let's find some discomfort in our world and embrace it. And uh, can you kind of explain to people why that's so important, why we need to embrace a bit of discomfort in our world? Yeah. So, so, so look, there's the, since the pandemic, um, the, the, the word resilience has probably been the most overused word, right? Um, because everybody's talking about resilience and, and the ability to bounce back. But my take on this is that resilience and that whole concept um, kind of underdoes us in terms of our potential. Um, that that we have the ability, and it's not just humans, it's, it's lots of different species, um, have inbuilt um, and genetic programming that helps us to adapt to certain stressors, to adapt to our environment, and, and that we become better because of exposure to these certain stressors. And, and, and look, I guess the easiest one for people to understand is the idea of exercise. And, and as I say to people, exercise is only good for you because it's a stressor. Like that is the only reason that exercise is good for you is because it puts your body under stress. Now, if you're going for a run, it's a cardiovascular stress and a little bit of muscular stress. But if you're, if you're lifting weights, it's stress on, on your muscular system and your skeletal system. But it doesn't matter what type of exercise you do. It actually stresses out the body and the body releases these stress response proteins that help us to adapt, that make us bigger, faster, stronger because of exposure to the stress. And it turns out that exercise isn't the only stressor. And, and I term these stressors, they come under the umbrella of what's called hormesis. Hormesis is a branch of science that basically says it's about sublethal exposure to stressors or toxins which can kill you at high levels but at low to moderate levels induce stress resistance so it's by exposing ourselves to intermittently and that's pretty key and we, i'm sure we can unpack that but but by exposing ourselves to intermittent stress we actually become better 
because of that exposure to the stress. Yeah, I get, get what you mean. My, my first book was called Stress Teflon. And it was basically all about how to embrace stress and then let it slide off. Nice. I, guess, I, li- I liked your little um, caveat there that it needs to be sublethal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like any of the stressors that I talk about in the book, whether it's um, nutritional stress from fasting, whether it's exercise stress, cold or heat stress, like all all of these stressors at very high levels can actually kill you, right? And, and, And that's the key is to get the dose right. So when it comes to stress, it's a bit like alchemy and poison. It's the dose that actually makes the poison. And often cases, it's the dose that determines whether something's going to be good for you or not. Both the dose, the duration, but also your recovery is pretty key as well. Yeah. So we might just backtrack a little bit and give people a bit of an idea of your history. Um, sure. um, where are you from? You spend a lot of time in the military. Can you can you give us the, the Paul Taylor story? Because I think there's yeah. a fair bit of that that's going to sort of work out where a lot of this comes from somehow. Yeah, look, there, there is a bit of my history back in this. So, so I was um, born and raised in Belfast um, um, from a mixed marriage, which in, in – Oh, Belfast, wow. Northern Ireland has a different connotation than anywhere else. So we were brought up as Catholics, but always lived in Protestant neighborhoods, um, which in the 1970s oh. in Northern Ireland um, was reasonably resilient. Yeah. Building, right. Then well, I. You no, know, we can't just brush over that, man. So I'm going to have to, because you didn't talk about much of that in the book. Because No, that's no, a no. Big thing. Yeah, the- yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's just. It's a big thing from the outside looking in, but w- when you're in there, it's just normal, right? So so that's the thing. But it certainly was resilience building. I, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, and, 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 you know, you talk to most people who have been through um, challenging upbringings, and I don't think mine was particularly challenging, but some people would say that it is. But, but it, it is that exposure to early stress. There's a lot of talk about PTSD and trauma, and rightly so, but there's a whole heap of research that shows that exposure to early life stress can actually make you much more resilient later in life, right? If we are, are brought up in this vacuum of stress, and it's it, uh, which which a lot of people want to do, and a lot of parents want to bring up their kids with no stress. That's actually not a good thing, because mm-hmm. the, the the key thing that I like to get across to people is the stress response system is trainable. It's malleable, right? It, it actually responds to inputs. And if you live a life with no stress, or particularly if you're brought up with no stress in your life, you actually become weak. That That is the best way to br- bring up weak adults is to actually de- bring them up in a vacuum of stress where they're, where they're, just, they're not exposed to any of that stuff. So, so anyway, that was my, my, my formative years. Then I joined, um, the British military, a, a, a Belfast Catholic joining the British military. There's not a lot of those there. Um, and I did eight years, um, flying in helicopters. I did anti-submarine warfare for a while, um, basically hunting submarines in helicopters. Then I did helicopter search and rescue, um, in the mountains and islands of Scotland. And I, I, importantly for this journey, I went through, um, 
combat survival and resistance to interrogation training when I was in the military, oh, which wow. was that's got to be pretty stressful, I would imagine. That was ten days of um, most stresses that you could imagine. How right? close to how how close to that sublethal line are we getting? Uh, yeah, look, it's it, so from a psychological perspective, it it certainly became pretty close. But you know, in those ten days. The only food they gave us was a chicken between four people that was alive when we got it. And um, we walked hundreds of kilometers, you know, heaps of fees in the 10 days. You know, the second five days we were hunted by a hunter force. We didn't have sleeping bags and it was the middle of winter in the UK. We just had a Gore-Tex bivy bag to, to keep us dry. And then at the end, when they thought it was all over, we got introduced to what they call the shock of capture which is getting a bit of a touch-up from a bunch of paratroopers. And then um, we were subjected to um, stress positions, um, sensory deprivation, white noise, uh, and then um, pretty unpleasant interrogations. Um, so that that was at the end of 10 days of worrying you down. Yeah, well, I guess this is almost like a, a whole nother podcast, but where does that sort of stuff Go from being that to being PTSD. Where's that line? Look, look for us, um, you know, it wouldn't get into to to that category. And 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 we were told afterwards we were debriefed. Everybody was debriefed by a, a psychologist, military psychologist, and and they were watching us all with with cameras um, hidden in the rooms. And and the, the, what what we didn't know is our interrogators had earpieces in, and they were saying, you know, you can push this guy a little bit more, or this guy's right at the edge, just oh. back off a little bit. So the whole idea was to take you right to the edge, right? And they had uh, so- psychologists who were sort of watching that and working out where that is. Absolutely. So, so, so you can trust pretty, those guys fairly well, wouldn't you? Yeah. No, no, that, make no, sure they right. know their shit. Yes, exactly. But the, the key thing for that was that, and, and this was really, I think, the catalyst for my journey here, is that afterwards I noticed that st- stuff that used to be stressful for me was no longer stressful. Uh, and having already done a master's degree in exercise science, I I really understood um, the science of exercise and that exercise, as I said earlier, is only good for you because it's a stressor. And, it, and it's the stress that stimulates adaptation to make you bigger, faster, stronger. And that's when I started thinking, well, maybe psychological stress goes through the same process. That that is it through exposure to that stress followed by recovery that you actually get mentally um, stronger, psychologically stronger, uh, and and there's bucket loads of evidence to suggest that this is in fact the case. And so my point is that we are living in this modern world where we are surrounded by comfort, uh, and that that you know we we do our best to avoid lots of different stressors, and and then we have these low level insidious stressors like work that that actually aren't these hormetic stressors, right? That we need to deliberately expose ourselves to certain stressors that are hormetic that are what I call evolutionarily conserved. And what I mean by that mouthful is that you see that these um, um, stressors have a positive impact on a whole host of different species across timelines of evolution. So it's clear that there there is genetically driven adaptations to stressors across multiple species. 
Yeah. I just want to back up a little bit. We were talking before about the, the, the stresses and stuff. I have a theory that, that if we look at stress as a challenge, it will actually cause that growth. If we look at stress as a threat, it can, it can kind of go the other way. Mate, your, your, your theory, actually, that? it's very grounded in science. I've got a research paper that I can flick you that, that shows that when you view a, a situation as a threat or as a loss, it activates um, cortisol, right? And, and cortisol um, is the major stress hormone, um, but when, when it's released over long periods of time, it makes you fat, it makes you sick, and it destroys your brain function. Conversely, when you view something, the same potential stressor, when you view it as a challenge, it activates your fight or flight part of your nervous system, which is nature's way of preparing us to deal with stress. So that's a a, a more adaptive response, whereas we go into that cortisol response, that's more maladaptive, right? So it can actually be really bad for us over the long term. So that psychological framing is hugely important. And I, I um, you know, I was giving a talk to a bunch of senior leaders yesterday and said, the language that you use for your people and for your kids and for yourself it's hugely important. And mm-hmm. and when I was in the military, I didn't hear people talk about stress. I mean, we were in stressful situations. All I heard was my senior officers talking about challenges mm-hmm. and, and bloody big challenges that we have to overcome. But it turns out that that psychological framing is key, absolutely key. And, and you know, this even plays into... Um, there was a beautiful study done by Harvard researchers that took a bunch of, of hotel cleaners and they took half of them and actually sat them down and said, do you know that the work that you do helps you to meet the physical activity guidelines and is actually good for you? And then they followed them up, the whole, all of them, um, for months. And it turns out that the people that they told that their work was a positive thing for their health actually got healthier. And, and they lost weight and things like that. Yeah. They lost weight, their blood pressure went down with no change in their circumstances, just a change in the psychological framing of what they're doing. So, yes, mate, you're absolutely bang on that how we approach things psychologically has a huge impact on the physiological response that we have to these things. It's amazing, too, that the the way we frame it in our heads and the language we use are just so critical. Like you were saying that when you were in the military, they never talked about stress. They just talked about the challenges. Mm. And the language we use makes a really big sort of part of that. How do you go about in in your work that you do with the the Mind Body Brain Institute? How do, how do you sort of teach people to to change their language and to change the way they look at that sort of stuff? One one of the big things I do is I I, I dive into Stoic philosophy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Stoics mm-hmm. and, and and particularly you know there's a couple of things that play beautifully in in with each other in this topic. You know Epictetus. The Stoic philosopher said everything in your life is in two zones, zone one and zone two. Zone one is the stuff that is within our control. And he says it's things like your belief systems, your attitudes, your behaviors, and how you choose to respond to your circumstances. And zone two is everything else. And Epictetus says when we're faced with challenges, we must focus on that which we can control, which is zone one. And, and refuse to invest our energy in the stuff we can't control. Now, when we couple that with the stoic idea that when you're faced with really big challenges that you can't control, they just become an opportunity to sharpen your character 
or 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 um, to practice some sort of a virtue. So it's actually looking at stuff that people would normally go, this is really bad, and actually go, no, actually, how can I benefit from that? How can I use this to practice some sort of a virtue internally or to sharpen my character? And I, I liken it, and I like people to think of, of, of themselves like a samurai sword. And if you think of the samurai sword is the, is the, mo- the strongest Bit of bit of metal, right? And why is it strong? Because they put it in the fire and they beat it when it's in the fire, right? And it's and then they cool it down and then they go through that process again. This is called tempering, and it's a hardening of the material because of exposure to the fire and and they're getting beaten and 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 that's exactly like us that that looking at when you're going through stress is that. Actually, this is an opportunity to sharpen my character and to make me more resilient for the future. Yeah, nice. And I, I love, I'm a massive fan of alter egos. Um, mm, I have yes. one. His, his name's Carlos, that anyone that's read any of my stuff will, will be familiar with Carlos. Um, you have one yourself, and I love the way you did this. His name is Jeb. Yes. Can, can you? Can you tell us how you kind of talk to your your alter? You ha, you ha talked about the inner sage and the inner gremlin. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. Preface with that, and and then maybe tell the story of how we came about Jeb. Yeah, so 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 the sage and gremlin is is basically, um, it's the idea of the voices in your head, right? So the gremlin is the version of you, and we all have one that's a little bit shit, right? <laughs> And it's to do with you know negative self talk, victim mentality, and entitlement mentality, self criticism, all of this negativity, right? And and lots of people get into um, problems and um, mental health issues because they are paying lots of attention to their gremlin and their gremlin hijacks their brain and they get sucked into an overthinking vortex that can develop into anxiety or depression or these sorts of things. And and lots of people would love to get rid of their gremlin. And the gremlin neg- bullshit to us too, don't they? Our gremlins tell us stories, they make stuff up, they give us And, and it's all a story. This is the key to understand is it's just a narrative and there are multiple narratives that you can have to a situation, right? So so this whole idea of getting rid of your gremlin, it, it, it's A, it's super, super hard to do. And, and and B, you can tie yourself up in knots with it. So there's three there's three other modalities that take a different approach. One is Japanese psychology, and um, one's acceptance commitment therapy, um, which is one of the most successful interventions for mood disorders. And my wife's a practitioner of both of those, which is how I'm, I'm familiar with them. And the third is Stoic philosophy. And Stoicism was actually the foundation for cognitive behavior therapy, which a lot of people don't realize, right? No, I don't know that. All three of these take the the approach that it's not about getting rid of negative emotions because they are a quintessential part of the human experience. It's about where you choose to place what in Japanese psychology they refer to as the flashlight of your attention. And it's when you pay attention to your gremlin that it, it can actually become damaging. And anything you pay attention to your brain will commit sales to, right? That's just the way the human brain works. So it's by paying attention to this negative voice in your head that's telling you you're shit or you're not good enough or whatever that story is, you're just energizing. And it's like you feed Mogwai after midnight in the movie The Gremlins, right? That's when you energize it. 
So this approach is not about saying, hey, I want to get rid of the gremlin, because what actually happens, Luke, is that people, they, they and there's this beautiful analogy in acceptance commitment therapy of the struggle monster. So the gremlin's like this big monster of negativity, and you're it's like you're trying to pull it into a hole and you're struggling with this struggle monster. And lots of people spend hours a day struggling with this struggle monster when sometimes they just need to drop the rope mm-hmm. and, and actually walk away. And the best way to drop the rope is to actually consult your inner sage and say, what would my sage do right now? So your sage is your best version of you. And I think it helps when you're creating your sage to think of people that are inspiring to you or that you admire, that you'd like to have character strengths of. Because So my sage is called Jev, J-E-V, named after three guys. Jim Stockdale, who's a bit of a personal hero of mine, um, was a fighter pilot in the Vietnam War, spent seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton prison camp. And the E is Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher. And the V is for Viktor Frankl, whose book I read as a 17-year-old, and it had a pretty um, amazing impact on my life. So when I'm struggling, I say to myself, what would Jeff do right now? But I don't just use it from when I'm struggling, right? I actually started to use it. So I'm Irish, I'm ex-military. I like a tipple, right? And, yeah. and alcohol is probably my Achilles heel. And so what I actually found um, was really useful in, in reducing my drinking. Not that it was problematic. It was just that, you know, I'm in the health and fitness yeah. game. You don't want to be drinking four nights a week. There's a law of diminishing returns with both. Yeah, though, totally, isn't totally, it? So totally. A few is um, more than yeah. a few. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so it was basically saying to myself, well, what would Jeff do tonight? It's a Thursday night. What yeah. would Jeff do? And, and that, that process is actually a technique in psychology called self-distancing, where you create a distance between yourself and the situation because we get entangled in, in the emotional context. And, and that's what makes us be emotional, make emotional decisions. And by consulting a sage or another entity or saying, Hey, if I, this was my best friend or my kid, what advice would I give them? They are all techniques of self-distancing that have been shown to actually help you make better choices and in, in, enhance your courage. So the Gremlin Sage is, is a, a little fun concept that's actually built on uh, on really good science. And then it's about visualizing your sage and doing mental rehearsal, just like any world-class athlete will do, is about doing mental rehearsal. And, 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 you know, what would my sage do in this situation? But when you've got that, um, I have an alter ego. Um, his name's Carlos. And yes. I get really clear about what the characteristics of Carlos is. Um, Correct. And he, mine is I'm curious, creative, and generous. And if I'm yes. reading those three, I'm happy as a pig and shit. But what I've also done after reading your book is I looked at sort of, okay, well, most of the time I am those three. All right. I looked at what are the things that I would like to be a little bit more. And the other one yes. I wanted to be was I wanted to be more present. I have like shiny squirrel syndrome. I go looking around. <laughs> and I wanted to be more present. And the moment I added present to those traits that I wanted to be, Carlos is now curious, creative, generous, and present. The moment I added present in there, I became more present. Yeah. And I- there's something amazing about that. But just that distancing that you're talking about, the psychological distancing. Even this morning, I went to the beach to check the surf and there was a, a, a McDonald's cup on the ground and Luke would have probably just walked over that. 
but Carlos picked it up and put it in the bin at the end of the beach. That's that. That see, this is the thing. It it's actually saying, what would my sage do? What would Carlos do right now? Right? Mm-hmm. How do I need to behave? What are the things that I need to do to be um, curious, creative, present? You, you know, these are the things that that this is. Um, where the sage is basically made up of your values, right? Of, of how you would like to live and how you would like to be and be seen by others. And then it's, okay, what behaviors do I need to do to exhibit those characteristics, right? That's another question that you could ask yourself as well as what would my sage do? What behaviors do I need to do right now to exhibit those characteristics. And it starts to then impact upon all different areas of your life. I love the way that you incorporated the the three names, like the Viktor Frankl and that put a gap between your stimulus yes. and your response and, and your ability to choose and all of that sort of stuff. I think that's a great way to change that story as well. I'm choosing my story. Yeah, um, we, we, and, and this is, this is uh, as Frankl said, we all get to choose how we react to our circumstances. And to the best of our knowledge, he wasn't influenced by the Stoic philosophers. You know, he, he came yeah. to this um, um, by, by his own, totally by his own accord. This whole idea that, yes, you, you know what? The universe is going to serve you up a shit sandwich every now and then. And some people get an unfair allocation of shit sandwiches, right? <laughs> and you can either, you can choose to play the victim, right? And woe is me and have self-pity, or you can actually choose to say, okay, well, this is just what's happened. And this beautiful term from Japanese psychology, arugamama, with things as they are, what needs to be done right now? You know, so it's that acceptance. Starting of- with acceptance. Yeah, you know, I've just got a shit sandwich or I'm having negative emotions, but what needs to be done right now? What do I need to do to move me towards the person that I want to be, right? Mm. So you're getting a shit sandwich. If you're playing the victim, is that really how you want to be? Do you want to be this victim your whole life or do you want to be something else? And if you want to be something else, okay, well, what behaviors do I need to do um, right now, in order to align me to that and to take me towards the person that I want to be, given that this shit has just happened, right? That That's the key. We all get to choose how we react to our circumstances. And I'm, and I'm not saying this is easy, um, particularly if you've been given a, a particularly nasty shit sandwich, but mm-hmm. still, we do get to choose how we react to our circumstances. I love that idea. Uh, a mate of mine gave me a... A great quote that was, if you're going to eat shit, don't nibble. Yeah. <laughs> get, get, it, get it done quick. So just I've got get to it do done, this, yeah. Just F and do it and, and get it done. I really I love that. that. I absolutely so love if it. If you're going to eat shit, don't nibble. Yeah. Um, and I love the way you're changing all of the, the way people look at some of this stuff and, and refocusing it into a challenge and using those stoic philosophies and the, and the Japanese psychology and stuff. One of the great things I thought about this book is that you – you managed to bridge the gap between knowing something and doing something. You got mm. very practical, particularly when it came to things like ultra-processed food and particularly when it came to a thing you called a movement snack. Yes. And since I read this, I've been doing movement snacks and they're awesome. They're mm. a really good way when your brain starts to drift off. As I mentioned, I've got sort of you know shiny squirrel syndrome. 
The moment I started, whenever I find myself doing that, that becomes my cue now to do a movement snack. And then when I come back to what I can do, I focus again. So can you explain to everyone what a movement snack is and how they can incorporate that into their world? Yeah, so so a movement snack is just basically um, 30 seconds to a couple of minutes of physical activity, right? And And the intensity is related to the time. So if it's a couple of minutes, it might be walking up a few flights of stairs for, for a couple of minutes. If you've just got 30 seconds doing burpees, kettlebell swings, so the, the key with the movement snack is that you need to get your body moving significantly. You need blood flow and oxygen to your brain or you need to work your muscles, right? And and the reason that I like to incorporate it um, throughout the day is that particularly if we're sitting for a long period of time, which a lot of people do when they're working, is that there are after about 30 minutes, there are changes in gene expression that negatively affect your physiology. And you get reduced blood flow and oxygen to your brain. Your decision-making becomes compromised. You start to get tired. So, and, and you can often get stressed if you're just sitting working all day long. So when you get up and you do that 30 seconds to a couple of minutes of physical activity, number one, you burn up stress hormones right? Mm-hmm. You, which helps you to come back to homeostasis. But number two, you get you increased blood flow and oxygen to your brain. So your brain works better and you're able to pay attention better, right? And you're then changing your physiology. And and actually, I, I just read a research paper yesterday, as it so happens, and um, it just, just released showing, and it, it was from the UK um, Biobank study. I'm going to do a, a, a short podcast on this. And basically, they tracked people who did movement snacks and find that that it had a huge impact on longevity um, and risk of cardiovascular disease and risk of cancer. And I've been saying it for years. It's, it's like it's not all about going to the gym for 30 minutes or going for a 30-minute run or whatever. It's that accumulation. So, you know, if you think, say I do 30 seconds of, of kettlebell swings, let's just say, which is one of the best exercises you can do, right? Say I get 20 of those in in that 30 seconds and I'm doing five of those a day. There's 100 kettlebell swings a day. In a working week, that is 500 kettlebell swings, mm. right? Which is over a working year, about 26,000 kettlebell swings. Now, that impact on your health long-term is massive, right? And this is what I like to say to people. It's the one percenters that, that, that you do consistently that have a huge impact over time, right? So, so let's flip it the other way. One Tim Tam a day over and above what you say. Let's just say you're weight stable for the next year. And mm-hmm. uh, if you have one Tim Tam a day over and above that, and um, that is the equivalent uh, of a three to five kilos of fat gain over the year, right? And wow. um, this is the thing, mate. It's the little things that you do consistently that have huge impacts over time. This is not about going on the friggin' lemon detox diet um, for four weeks and then eating shit the rest of the year. It's the stuff that you do consistently. And I like to get to people to focus on those little things, which done consistently over time can have huge impacts. One of the things you talk about too is they become part of your identity, don't they? I, I'm the type Correct. of person who does this. Um, I I tapped out at my heaviest at about 118 kilos. I'm like 63, wow. so I'm, I'm, I'm a big dude, but, yeah, I was fat. And I just found fasting about four or five, 
about four years ago. And uh, yeah. I'm now like, you know, somewhere in the high 90s. And I'm comfortable at that. That's, that's fantastic cool for me. But to be able to say, I just, when people say, you know, how did you lose weight? My, my answer was, I just don't eat Mondays. Yeah, there you go. I, I just don't eat Mondays. And so I just go Mondays and just, just fast all day Monday. Because people get really worried. I guess it turns into that threat and challenge thing with fasting too. Um, that I'm, uh, if I don't eat, I'm going to get in all sorts of trouble. And like cavemen spend ages not being oh, able to it, eat. It, We're designed it, for that. This this does my head in to to hear doctors and dietitians telling to pe- people that you shouldn't fast that it's not good for you. You know the world record fast, yeah, um, three hundred and eighty whatever. Three hundred. I think it's three hundred and eighty three days. Actually, I wrote Scot- it down. Three hundred eighty two days. It was a Scottish guy, nineteen seventies, from two hundred kilos. He lost a hundred. Yeah, and he just went to his doc and he went, "Doc, I'm a bit fat. I think I should stop eating for a while. Will you supervise me?" And he didn't eat for three hundred and eighty two days. He lost a hundred and twenty kilos and he kept it off. Right. So here's the thing that I say to people. You can fast for a day. You're yeah. not going to die, yeah. right? Unless, so, so the only caveat is that is people Salt. with insulin resistant, right, resistant diabetes, uh, or sorry, insulin um, um, sensitive diabetes, you, you know, those sorts of things. There, there are a few chronic conditions, but for the vast majority of people, you can go for a month without eating, right? Yeah. It'll be uncomfortable psychologically, mm-hmm. but you won't die. That's for sure. You've got so, to put some salt in there, is probably in some of the some of the minerals. You've got to have those yes, in there, which are that, 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 that's right. And if you're it, it, so, but what I'm kind of getting at is that people go, uh, uh, "I can't not eat. At, uh, I can't stop eating at seven o'clock at night and mm-hmm. fast for twelve hours. I just couldn't do that." I'm like. That's bullshit. Of course you could do it. You just don't want to do it because it's a little bit uncomfortable, right? That's the thing. One of the great things about that that Scottish guy in the in the seventies is yeah, you see people and and they go on the biggest loser and they if they lose a whole lot, they get all that flabby skin and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. He didn't have any of it. Everything just shrunk as he shrunk because he was using autophagy. His body was yeah. using its own cells and stuff for fuel. And the fact that, you know, he came out of it and he didn't have all of that flobby skin and all of that sort of stuff because his body just said, oh, that, that bit of used, used up cell, that's protein. Let's use we, that. We, and yeah, we don't, that we, we don't need it anymore. And, that, and, and that's the key thing. Look, one of the biggest benefits of fasting is this autophagy, right? And, um, you, you know, it, it, it actually becomes more important as we get older. I mean, I'm the wrong side of 50 now. So there is a lot of science that has come out to say that different types of fasting um, can induce autophagy. And, and you know, exercising in a fasted state can induce autophagy in the muscle cells. But it would Not just for people that don't know, autophagy is when, you, when your body uses its own cells as fuel. Yeah, so so basically, when you go in a fasted state, um, um, your body does a spring clean essentially, and inside the cell, it'll go around and scoop up damage, and it'll recycle that damage for fuel, right? But at a bigger level, and particularly when it, it would appear to be in humans, it seems to be three or four days is necessary for widespread autophagy. That basically the body will just go through uh, looking at all the cells and and senescent cells which we call zombie cells, they're, they're one of the biggest drivers of aging and, and premature disease and chronic disease, is that when a cell starts to become damaged beyond the ability for it to repair itself, 
it goes into this zombie like state um and 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 it doesn't go through the natural cell cycle which is um apoptosis where it basically commits suicide so it stays in this zombie state kind of like the white walkers if anybody has seen um game of thrones right and then those cells senescent cells leak out inflammatory chemicals that uh, impact upon other cells. And so what happens when we do in a prolonged fast is the body will actually use those cells um, for energy. It'll actually recycle them. The body is amazing. Its ability to recycle cellular junk and use it for positive processes. And then we basically get this whole cellular spring clean, um, which would appear to be amazing. What people get mistaken with that is they think, oh, if, if I don't eat, if I don't put enough protein in, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose the muscle off off my arms and things like that. And it's kind of like if if you had a fire and you needed to get firewood, you're not gonna put the couch on there, are you? So you're gonna put the the bits of wood that are all crap and are all broken. Yes, and 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 particularly if you're fasting, if you're doing longer term stuff, it's important to do resistance training because then the body's going. Oh, actually, these muscles are needed, mm-hmm. so I won't catabolize the muscles. So, so that is a way to minimize muscle loss. This is if you're doing a sort of extended fast and stuff like that, or you're doing the sort of sixteen eight those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, if I've been doing that, I like to do some resistance exercise in the morning, so that it says to my body, "Hey, this muscle's needed. Don't don't use the muscle. Use some other cellular junk instead." Yeah, right. Makes perfect sense. And you also get an increase in growth hormone as well when you're fasting as well. Absolutely. You can get big spikes in growth hormone, yeah. right? Which is really and, key. And BDNF too, you get you get more BDNF in there, which is basically like brain fertilizer. So your brain can change more when you're fasting as well. Um, I yeah. did a five-day fast uh, last year where I went and stayed in a teepee in the bush um, only and didn't have any food for five days, had no technology, no people and no food. Fantastic. And – it's amazing when I came out of that, I was just zen as hell. I was just the calmest human in the whole entire world. And how, um, how, many, how long did it take before you started to feel the mental clarity, right? And that, that's, when, oh, that's when you kicked into ketosis and BDNF is going. So, yeah. so different people headed at different times. How long did it take you? Pro, I, I did fasting anyway, so I'd kind of I, I'd warmed up to a little bit. I'd done a couple of two and three days, but yeah, okay. um, day one's always okay. Day two kind of sucks. By day three, yeah, I've got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah and nice. I did a lot. I did a lot of walking in the bush and stuff like that, which was hard. But I found that on the last few days, if I'd done a long walk, by the time you're coming home, you just run out of your glucose stores, so you just had to have a few breaks and stuff like that. But yeah, that was okay. That, that was all fine. But got the clarity on about day three. I think the night night two, I remember reading reading a book that was Live Like a Monk by Jay Shetty. And one of the things it was was um, letting go of external expectations of what you should do and just looking within to what you want to do. And I, I did – my goal at the start was to write a book in five days and realise wow. on about day two that that's just fucking stupid. <laughs> um, that that's not gonna <laughs> and so once I read that line, I went, okay, let's just let go of that and let's just enjoy five days of mental clarity and all of that sort of stuff and love that. And I'm still feeling the benefits of it now, which is I guess what you're talking about with this, with death by comfort, that getting yourself out of your comfort zone, you can still get the benefits of that. You know, this is 18 months later. Absolutely. And, and and that's why one of my maxims in life is to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what we need to do. And and then the other one 
that like is is be a silver lining hunter right it's just right. always hunt for the silver lining you know even when the shittest thing has happened to you that there's nearly always a silver lining if you look hard enough and it's about focusing on the silver lining rather than focusing on the crap stuff that actually happened that actually helps us to move on yeah it doesn't it doesn't it mate paul taylor the book's called death by comfort and it's been great having you on here you the book is amazing anyone that wants to read it it's it's not as masochistic as it sounds but um yes. But it's a really cool book, and and I think the fact that you're so practical in it was some of the best things that I love. So, um, mate, thank you very very much for coming on your next read. Matt, thank you. And I like that you said that because I call myself a pracademic. So I like to take the academic research and then give the practical tools and solutions. So I'm delighted that that's come across in the book. It's exactly what it did, mate. And I really really enjoyed it, and I hope everyone else does too. Thanks, mate. 